I'm Dale Petrosky, and this is how you sell without selling out. Rogers that. Hi, I'm Rogers Healy, and welcome to Rogers That, a podcast dedicated to selling without selling out. Today, we have somebody who's a lot of things. He's a friend, he's a leader, he's a gentleman. Um, but the word I keep thinking about when I think of my friend Dale Petrosky is he's diverse. Dale has a background in just about everything. You're going to have to uh, pardon my eyes because I'm going to read off a script because there's so much that Dale has done, and I refuse to butcher this. So, Dale's done it all. He's worked in the White House, serving as the assistant White House press secretary to Ronald Reagan, my favorite president of our lifetime. He was the president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. If you've not been, you need to go, even if you don't like sports. And most recently, he's the CEO of the Dallas Regional Chamber, which was recently recognized as the number one chamber in the entire United States. All of that before the age of 30. Dale is going to share his <laughs> stories today with us, ranging from baseball to National Geographic to dominating the world of Chamber of Commerces. Um, but yeah, it's a lot. But again, I, I love being friends with Dale. I met him through a mutual friend here, and we uh, both thought we were probably walking in just a business lunch, and then we went off and had a conversation because I think all relationships need the most important thing to keep it going, and that's familiarity. And we had a lot of stuff in common uh, that revolved around baseball and business and friendships. But among all, uh, Dale has proven that you can go and find different things, whether they're interconnected or not, and you can rise to the top simply because you have what it takes. So today, we have my friend, Dale Petrosky, as our guest. Rogers, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Appreciate did it. I forget anything? National Geographic. 12 years at I National Geographic. I did? Yeah. Did I really? <laughs> 12 years at National, National Geographic. Dadgummit. Okay, Senior Vice President of National Geographic. That's right, yeah. Okay, see, we just needed to have a lead-in. But I, so I gave a little bit of the background, but maybe, maybe tell us, you know, the Dale story, you know, from relative childhood to, to adulthood, what was the um, what was the gift that you knew you had at an early age? Well, I grew up as one of nine kids. Oh my gosh. In uh, the Detroit area. And we lived in a 1300 square foot house. So we had 11 people in a 1300 square foot house. Uh, we had two bathrooms. My mom and dad had a bathroom and the other nine kids had a bathroom. Oh my gosh. And so you can imagine that that allowed for a lot of closeness <laughs> and a lot of bumping into each other. Where, where did you rank on the nine? I was number two. Wow. And then my dad, um, uh, who was working in the furniture business, decided to go for it. And he um, started his own business in the mattress business, uh, mattress and recliner business. And we moved from that little house to, in one, one move, uh, to one of the nicest suburbs in Detroit, Birmingham. Yeah. And, um, and so that's where I spent my last two years of high school in Birmingham. And uh, I would venture to say that if my dad had not gone for it and been an entrepreneur and really, really, uh, really thought that he could be successful, none of us would probably have gone to college. Uh, as a result of my dad, he changed generations and uh, all nine of us graduated from college. And wow. we have kids now that all have done very, very well, my, well not just my wife and me, but my brothers and sisters have very accomplished young kids. And so um, I think it's testimony to the American dream and what you can do if you just put your mind to something and get it done. Yeah, no joke. Well, uh, before we forget with Detroit, who was your favorite player as a kid? Uh, I, my favorite player was a short-lived Detroit Tiger by the name of Rocky Calavito. Rocky Calavito. Yeah, he's most known uh, as a Cleveland Indian because huh. uh, that's where he made his name. But he came to Detroit for four years. But in the four years he was in Detroit, he was hitting... 40, 45 home runs, and he had a very distinct style of hitting and, and, and throwing that I loved. And uh, so he was my favorite. But every other kid's favorite was Al Kaline, yeah. who, uh, who was Mr. Tiger, and he was uh, the greatest Tiger of our generation. What well, do you feel like you fell in love with sports and baseball as a kid in Detroit? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I love sports from the time I was five years old. Mm. And, uh, by the time I was seven, I was watching as much tigers were only on 40 games a year. If we forget, you couldn't watch every game in those days. You could listen on the radio. And I listened every night when I wasn't playing, I watched every night when I was 12 years old, I was a a volunteer boy usher at tiger stadium. I take the bus down after school to tiger stadium to wipe seats for free, just so I can be in the ballpark. I just loved everything about baseball. Wow. Did you complain about the heat? <laughs> no, no, no not, not. not in Detroit. Not in Detroit. So, so you graduate. Where'd you go to college? I went to Michigan State. So you're to Michigan State. You're there getting ready for Magic Johnson, and all of a sudden you decide to go and have your first jaunt in the world of uh, of being an adult. What what led you to working with President Reagan side by side, fifty feet from him? during one of the most iconic presidencies of all time? Well, it wasn't my first job. My first job, I was a journalism major and a political science minor. My first job was with the Michigan House Republicans. We had 40 members of the Michigan House Republicans in those days, and there were 70 Democrats in the House. We were a big minority. And one day I was asked to, um, one day a young state representative, 29 years old, walked into my office he thought I was a pretty hardworking guy. He liked me. And he said, Dale, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what I think is going to happen in the next year and a half. I think, I think Ronald Reagan's going to win the nomination uh, in 1980 to, to be the Republican candidate for president. I think he can beat President Carter. I think if he does that, he's going to bring my congressman, David Stockman, into his cabinet. That opens up that seat. I want you to run my campaign for Congress. This is a state rep asking me to run his campaign for Congress. But all those dominoes have to fall. Yeah. And sure. Good salesman. Huh? And, and I said, uh, OK, I'll do that. And thinking there's no way all these dominoes are going to fall. And this is like a year and a half before. Well, of course, they all fell. And uh, he came into my office that day and he said, uh, you ready to go? I said, let's go. Were you single? Uh, no, married two years. And, uh, but, um, and here's the interesting thing. It was a special election. So it was a very short, it wasn't like a long campaign because which, which, elect, which election for Reagan? No, no, this is for Stockman. For, for Stockman's seat. Got it. Okay. This guy's name was Mark Siljander and Siljander. Uh, so I went down to the, to the South of Kalamazoo in, in, in Michigan, uh, in the Western part of the state. I ran the campaign for six weeks we were big underdogs. We were not expected to win because Stockman had endorsed his own candidate. And Stockman was on top of the world. He's on the cover of Time Magazine, Newsweek. He was the youngest cabinet secretary in history at that time, 30, wow. 34 years old. He was like, he was on top of the mountain. Mm. He endorsed his own campaign manager. We beat that guy by 181 votes. Wow. And that's how I got to Washington. I, had, I ran a successful congressional campaign after never being 25 years old and never running anything in my life. Were you surprised that he won? We worked hard. We, we knew we were going to be close, but uh, I didn't know that we were going to win. So we get to Washington. I'm with him for six months. He's much he was a much better candidate than he was a congressman. I thought he was, I was disappointed in him. In him. I think he was there to play when he, once he got there. He was 29 years old. And uh, one day, the staff was having pizza and beer on a Friday night. And I'm there, and this is all the guys that worked on the campaign are now in the office. And they're all complaining about the office, how it's being run by somebody else. And uh, finally, I, they said, Dale, you're awfully quiet. You're not saying anything. I said, you know why? Because if I take a check from someone and they sign my check, I don't have a right to complain about them. If you guys hate this this much, go ahead and quit. And by saying those words, I told myself at that moment, 
you're quitting. I didn't tell them right then that I was quitting. I went home to my new bride and I said, I'm quitting. Uh, and she knew I was unhappy there. And so I walked in Monday, turned in my resignation and, uh, started, started, um, walking the halls of Congress, trying to look for my next job. So you're, cult, you're, you're door knocking. And, and I'm door knocking. And I finally, I run into a guy that I worked on the campaign with in Michigan. And I said, uh, he said, Dale, I hear you're leaving Siljander's office. I said, yeah. And he said, uh, I said, do you know of anybody looking? He said, yeah, Goodling's looking for a chief of staff, but you're way too young and you haven't been here very long. That's, you can't do that. Well, I went home that weekend. I went to the bookstore because there was no internet in those days. Mm-hmm. And I went to, the, uh, to find the Almanac of American Politics, which is sort of the Bible of American politics. I looked up Goodling, put together my resume, walked in Monday morning, handed it in, got a call back saying, Congressman, would like to see you Thursday. Went in, interviewed with him. And what happened is, is I had no business interviewing for a chief of staff job. But here's what I realized. He was an educator. He was a teacher, coach, guidance counselor, principal, superintendent. He moved all the way up the ranks. Now he's the chairman of the ranking Republican on the House Education Committee. So education's in his blood, teaching, mentoring's in his blood. And he was kind of bored with his job because he was winning handily every time. So it wasn't a challenge for yeah. him. What he, when he, when I walked in that door, what he was looking for, what he saw was his next quarterback, his next quarterback that he could coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of a green, unmolded guy, but with some potential. And he hired me. And then, um, and you know, in the early months, I would say, you know, Congressman, I don't know, just don't know how to do that. He said, I'll teach you. Don't worry, I'll mm-hmm. teach you. So, so anyway, uh, he, 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 he took me under his wing. Bottom line with him was I was with him for three years before I was asked to go down to the White House. And I'll get to that in a minute. I was with him for three years. I had been away from him for 30 years, but I stayed in touch with him every month just to check in on him. And at his uh, funeral uh, a few years ago, at the age of 90, I was asked to give the eulogy. No way. I worked with him for three years, but had not worked it for 30 years. Wow. And, and it was a big honor for me. And But that's the kind of bond we, we, we formed. So here's how I got to the White House. You asked that question. Yeah. So I'm working on Capitol Hill. I'm having a great life with Congressman Goodling on Capitol Hill. And one day, uh, the congressman has an event in York, Pennsylvania, his hometown, 100 miles north of Washington. And he always invited a big Washington name to come up to his district for this event. The first year I was there was James Baker, who at that time was the White House chief of staff, later became secretary of state under George H.W. Bush. Anyway, I like how you're looking at me like I know this stuff. I know nothing. I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay. I know George Bush. Yeah. Okay. So then the second year I'm there, he invites the White House press secretary, Larry Speaks, to be the big name. And so he calls me up. The congressman calls me up in the morning and said, Dale, I can't make it to Washington to fly up with you and Larry, so you just take good care of him. And when he's at the event, if I'm busy, make sure he gets around and meets people, then you fly home with him. So I, I'm on a little Air Force jet with Larry, four-seater, just the two of us. And we get talking right away. And I had never stepped foot in the White House before. I said, what's it like? What's your day like? You know, I see you on TV, but what is what goes into getting prepared for briefings and things? And so he's telling me all about it. And then he says, hey, what's going on on the Hill? Because he used to work on the Hill. And then we just bonded. We bonded over baseball, too. He loved baseball. I love baseball. And we just we bonded. Went up, came back. I wrote him a note. Hey, it's so wonderful to meet you. Hope we can see each other again. He wrote me a nice note. A year and a half later, I'm sitting in my office, phone rings. My assistant says, Dale, I've got Larry Speaks on the line. And I said, 
Uh, interesting. He said, um, he gets me on the phone. He says, uh, how you been? He said, have, we haven't talked in a while. I said, doing great. He said, listen, you're busy. I'm busy. I got one question for you. How would you like to come to work for President Reagan and me? I said, what? He said, always remembered our trip to Pennsylvania. And I took your card, your business card. And the next morning at my morning staff meeting, I held it up and I said, the next opening we have, this is the guy we're hiring. And I put it in my drawer. And this is the first chance I've had to make good on that promise to myself. Did he tell you what you're going to be doing? So so then he said, come on down Thursday. And it was a, it was a Monday and, um, we talked about it and, um, that's how it all happened. And then, and, and so Did I, you be, know what you were going into essentially yeah, an interview for? Yeah, I knew, I knew, I knew the job. Yep. I was going to be, um, running the lower press office, which means I was a spokesman for the president. You know, we had guidance every day on what to say and what not to say, but I'd be dealing with the press. I'd be dealing with, um, um, the domestic side of, of, uh, government transportation department and mm-hmm. labor department, all these other departments. And I would be, um, I would be running the the office that put out all the official pronouncements of the White House, whether it was statements of the president, the transcripts from the from the uh, press conferences, uh, you know, announcements of ambassadors and so forth. So it's wow. very heady stuff for a twenty nine year old. So you enter, and then all of a sudden you think that I mean, what 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 do you even have as far as a vision for what the next six months or four years or however long your life you, you assume doing this? No, no way to know. I was just holding on for dear life. I'll t- you, you didn't anticipate being a career politician. Oh you didn't no, have an end goal of being the president. No, no, gosh, no. You know, um, I'll tell you one quick story though, because I think this would be helpful to those folks listening listening and watching. Um, I'm there about a week and I'm, I'm still in a bit of a, you know, shell shock. <laughs> yeah. Shell shocked by all this. And Larry had a meeting every morning at, at seven 30 for 10 minutes. It was a stand up meeting for everybody to say, okay, here's, here's the president's schedule today. Here's the press coverage we're going to allow. Here's the stories we're worried about. Here's the stories we want to push. Okay. And that we also, we all had it right there in 10 minutes. And I've been there about a week, and I'm like gaga still over all this. And he stops in mid-sentence, and he looks right at me. He said, Dale, you going to remember all this? And I looked around at everybody, and they, were all had, they all had note cards. And they're all taking notes. And I didn't have a paper or pencil. Is that why you still carry that? Seriously? I'm going to tell you in a minute. I wanted to fall through the floor. I was so embarrassed. The most embarrassing moment of my career. Uh, But from that moment on... I have always carried a note card. And the reason, I think this is the key to my success, to be honest with you, because you can start your day, and I do start my day very intentional about what things I need to get accomplished, but you can't predict what's coming at you all day long. You're going to say something to me, Rogers, and I'm going to say, I love that idea, I'm writing it down, or I need to follow up on that. Who, who are the people that get the best jobs? They're the most dependable people. Who are the dependable people? People who write things down and follow through. Which, and it's, it's so hard to do it on a phone because you feel like you're texting somebody, you know? I think that... Um, I, I do paper and pencil. I, I remember it much better same. and I get it done. But, but the, these are the things I need to follow up on tomorrow morning. Huh. And, and get it taken care of. And I, I really believe it's been the key to my success because I'm spending my day actively listening to whoever I'm with so that balls are not flying by me and I'm not catching them. You know, the, the, yeah. there's so many things, there's so many things in our life that, that are opportunities that are biased and we're onto something else. 
But if you have this, you can catch them and you can follow up on them or you can go go research it or whatever it is. And those balls are not flying by you anymore. So you, so not only are you playing offense with what you know you need to accomplish in the day, you're playing defense on everything coming at you. And it doubles your opportunities. I love that. I keep a, a to-do list in my office every day, which, you know, it's not as, as a, you know, intense, but it's not as detailed as that. But I do. I, I, when I write, I'm right-handed. When I write, it definitely processes different. Yeah. And I found out, too, fun fact, if you write on yellow, you're more likely to remember it. If you write with blue, you're more likely to accomplish it. Yeah, so that's uh, interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's almost weird to see somebody pull out a note card, which gets conversation going too. Yeah, I start my day just real quick. Yeah, I, I, I here's the way I divide my page. It's a full length, eight and a half by eleven page in a notebook, like a literal page. Yeah, literal page. So right down the middle, cut in half. Left side is all the things I need to talk to my senior team about in the senior team meeting that morning. Just for that day. For that day, right side's cut into three. Top third is priorities, the top five things I have to get done that day. Mm. You know, Middle part is to-do list. It's, it's calls I need to make. It's things I need to follow up on. It's quick notes. It's just littler, the littler things. The bottom is all the personal stuff I've got to accomplish that day. And so that's the way I start my day. I, I spend the weekend getting ready for that. Okay. Mm. And then... As the day goes on, I'm right. I'm catching all the balls as they go by me. Is it too. the same kind of paper every day you carry? Yeah. What yeah. if you have shorts on? <laughs> I put I fold it up and put it in my back pocket. Seriously? I, I take to the golf. I take this to the golf course because I can be playing golf with somebody and they give me an idea or they tell me a story, and I'm not going to miss it. I'm going to catch it. Mm, I love it. So, yeah. um, and it's and again, it's hard to sum up your experience at the White House, but since we only have so much time on here and I want to talk about a few other things as well, what would be like the top one or two, you know, memories you had while working with, I'm sure you consider him to be one of the greatest presidents in the history of our, uh, no question of our country, but uh, what, what are your takeaways? I mean, how could you even sum it up in a paragraph? So I'll give you two. One is, uh, I was at the first two meetings with, uh, uh, Gorbachev, uh, yeah, who was the leader, leader of the Soviet union. Yeah. Uh, the first one was in Geneva in 1985. The second one was in Reykjavik, Iceland in 1986. And that was the beginning of the end of the Cold War. So to be a witness to that and be part of that was unbelievable. And frankly, were you in the room? No, I was not. Well, I'm saying you were in the present. Yeah, yeah, I was there, but I was not in the room with Gorbachev and the president. Wow. No, but but uh, so that was. We knew it was going to be big. We didn't know it was going to be that big. Okay, so there, that's one. Second, the second one has to do with spending time with the Reagans. I, um, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, there was a guy in, the, in our office who went to the Camp David with the Reagans every weekend because he was single and, you know, he had time to do that. And he, he loved doing it. He wanted to go party with the Reagans. And then he got in trouble, a little bit of trouble. And, um, and so one day I'm in my office and Larry call, calls me on the phone and said, come up and see me. He said, um, I want you to go to Camp David with the Reagans tomorrow. I'm like, what? Why me? <laughs> and so, so I went up to Camp David with the Reagans and we had a unbelievable weekend you fly up in the helicopter it's called marine one i'm from the south grounds fly 35 minutes into the catoctin mountains of maryland you drop down you get to um camp david drop the reagans off you met by an suv you drop the reagans off at their their lodge and then take take me over to where i'm going to stay a little cabin and so first night it's it's uh it's dinner with the staff and then um a movie in the reagan's living room there's only five of us with the reagan's watching a movie i don't remember the first one i remember some of them and then and then the um and then 
great Saturday and then doing it again Saturday night and then flying home. So we get home on Monday. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I'll check that off my list of thing, cool things. And so uh, Larry calls me up on Monday morning. He says, I want to see you. And I said, oh, man, what have I done? Uh-oh. He said, um, Too much pizza. He, he said you, you, you must, the, the Reagans must have loved you because they want you to go from now on. Oh my gosh. And until Mark comes back. So um, for the next 10 weekends, uh, and I got to bring my wife after after that first time, uh, we got to go up and be with the Reagans for the whole week of the weekends. And uh, oh that was gosh. unbelievable. And that formed a bond with the Reagans that very few people had. In fact, when, I, when President Reagan died, Mrs. Reagan had only 1,000 seats in the cathedral. To, to, to hand out tickets, and I was one of them. I felt, uh, anybody in the world, and I was really, I was touched by that. Wow. And then when she passed away, I was one of only two people from the press office, those eight years in the press office. 55 people passed through the press office in those eight years, wow. and then two of us got invited to Mrs. Reagan's funeral. What an honor. So, yeah, it was. those are the things that you never forget. Wow. Um, I don't even know where to go from there, but so uh, take us on the the journey. So the white house, you think that you're going to potentially be a career in the world of politics, politician or not, maybe not, but I mean, how do you go and level up? What was the next phase of your journey? I I knew that I didn't want to spend my life in politics. Um, and so I was working with, um, I then went from the White House to be Assistant Secretary of Transportation for Public Affairs under Elizabeth Dole. And then um, I was there for nine months when she decided to help her husband, Bob Dole, run for president. He was senator from Kansas. And uh, she, she left. And it was big news in Washington that she was leaving that cabinet post. And I get a call from my buddy, Bob Sims, who had just become the first ever vice president of communications at National Geographic. Based in D.C. Four blocks from the White House. He and I worked in the White House together. He was the he was the deputy press secretary for foreign affairs. I was the assistant press secretary for domestic affairs. But we were on the same team. And he, he called me up and said, are you a free agent now that Elizabeth's leaving? And I said, I guess so. I hadn't even thought of that. He said, uh, why don't you come on over here and do this with me? Let's do this together. And so I, I got called to National Geographic to be Bob... Sims's deputy. And I was there for, um, as one of the great gigs of my life. Um, I quickly became like the aide de camp to the CEO, Gil Grosvenor, mm. who was, um, the third Grosvenor to run national geographic, um, uh, over the, over a hundred years, his grandfather, his father and him had run it for a hundred years. They were the descendants of Alexander Graham Bell. So I sort of became part of the Grosvenor family during doing People that. People in Dallas think there's old families here. It's like, no, you were literally with Alexander Graham Bell's family. Exactly. And so Gil, Gil, I was there for 12 years, and I had been there. I had done well. They, they had promoted me to senior vice president. I was the youngest of the top five at National Geographic. I thought I had a chance to be president of National Geographic. And the phone rang. It was my buddy I'd worked with uh, a long... You, can't, you, told, you did 20 minutes in the White House. You can't just do two on National Geographic. No, no I mean, but we can come back to it, but I want to... But I'm, like, even okay. when you're there, what was like, I mean... What, oh. Did you get to go on cool explorations? Did you get to meet some cool people? I mean, my, everyone, has, everyone knows the National Geographic. It's probably the most iconic look of any print... Art, like any print publication of all time. Yeah, okay. So when I was there, my responsibilities were um, the research and exploration grants to the greatest explorers. It was Sir Edmund Hillary, Jacques Cousteau, Jane Goodall, Bob Ballard, people like that. Wow. 
Uh, and then I was in charge of a 50-state geography education program. Uh, it was to get geography back into American schools and make sure it was well-taught. Mm. A big effort by the geographic. And then I was in charge of all the public programming, both within the walls of the geographic and then outside in the country when explorers went out and talked about their work. So I had a really cool, cool portfolio of work. And on a path to potentially have a different kind of position with National Geographic, yeah. and then your phone rings. Yeah, so I was in the top five. I, I'd been there 12 years. I thought my life was going to be a geographic life, and my buddy calls me up. He, his family, his, his wife's family had a summer home in Cooperstown, New York. He knew how much I loved baseball. He never met anybody who loved baseball like I did, and very few people do love baseball like I do, I think, and know as much about it as I do. And so um, he called me up and said, Dale, there's a job you need to have. And I said, I already got the job I need to have. He said, no, I mean it, president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. I said, what? He said... <laughs> Had uh, you been before? Never been to Cooperstown. Wow. And he said, um, he said, I think, you know, knowing your passion for the game and your knowledge of the game and your pedigree at the White House, National Geographic, if you threw, threw your hat in the ring, you might have a shot. And so I went home and talked to my wife. She was like, no, no, we had little kids, and she loved the Geographic. She's an outdoors girl. And, um, but she, she, we've been dating since high school. She knew my passion for baseball. And I said, just let me throw my hat in there. I'm not going to be chosen. And so, uh, I interviewed and, and they chose me and, and it was a fantastic nine years in Cooperstown. We lived in this little beautiful, idyllic little town of 2,300 people, raised our kids there. And, uh, it was just a great chapter in our life. You, you were the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. I mean, so again, bringing it back from Rocky or Al, Al Line, I mean, what was, what was a moment where you first were there? You're like, I can't, I remember we had lunch and I was kind of fanboying like, and you were just saying the coolest moment you took your dad to one of the inductions. Your dad got to meet some of his heroes and yeah. you're in the same room. But what was the first moment where you realized like you're, you were living a dream for the first moment? I, I remember it vividly. I invited um, my dad to join us, to join me in, for my first weekend in Cooperstown, first Hall of Fame weekend in Cooperstown. Um, Anne had the kids back in Virginia. Uh, I love my mom, but, but I just wanted to be with my dad because my dad's the guy who put the glove on me when I was five years old and taught me to love the game, right? So now I'm in Cooperstown, and at the first night of the weekend is a reception at the chairman's home. And all of the returning Hall of Famers are there. So they're coming through the line, and the receiving line is the chairman and me greeting them back to Cooperstown. Now, I'm brand new. I'm greeting them to Cooperstown, but I had never really lived in Cooperstown. And so here comes, you know, um, Yogi Berra, uh, Whitey Ford, uh, Hank Aaron, Willie May, Stan Musial, Frank Robinson, George Brett, you know, and it's Nolan's weekend, by the way. It's mm. the, it's a week the weekend that Nolan was inducted. So it's Nolan, um, George Brett, Robin Yount, and uh, Orlando Cepeda. It's their weekend. Wow. It's 1999, and I, it's like an out of body moment for me. Like, wow, this is crazy. And so my dad is standing nearby talking to somebody with a, a glass of wine. And there's a lull in the action. I look over at my dad, and he's got, like, tears streaming down his face. Mm. And so at the end of the night, we're walking back to the place where we were staying. And I said, Dad, you okay? And he said, yeah, why? I said, well, I, look, I looked over. You looked upset about something. He said, upset? He says, he says, I never dreamed when I put that glove on your hand at five years old that you were going to grow up to be the president of the baseball <laughs> hall of fame. It's Man. pretty crazy. That was a pretty crazy moment. That's so awesome. So uh, loaded question, but... 
I've worked in the business of sports sometimes with the real estate stuff. Sometimes I left less of a fan of the sport. Now that you're, you know, past being behind the scenes, are you more of a fan or less of a fan of, of sports and baseball? I think a little of both. Yeah. You know, in some ways you meet some of the most awesome people you could imagine, and they're yeah. even better than you expected them to be. Like who? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, I think Nolan is one of those guys, you know, who just has something about him that's so, so, um, such character, such integrity. Uh, I think guys like, um, I loved the guys of my era, so that would be Al Kaline, Harmon Killebrew, uh, Phil Necro, Robin Roberts, uh, who just, you would ask them, do you, are you sad you didn't make the big money? And they say, yeah, we're sad for our family's sake, but yeah. would we have ever wanted to play at a different era? Absolutely not. I wouldn't trade the time we played for all the money in the world. Yeah. So there, there were so many really, really good guys that, uh, that I met along the way. So you, you do this, and you're at the, the for how long are you at the home Not, Nine years. Nine years. You think maybe Cooperstown is going to be, you know, Dale will run for mayor because it's going to be home <laughs> forever, and then uh, the phone rings again. Yeah, phone rings, and Nolan called, and Nolan Ryan, and he had just become president of the Texas Rangers, and he said, uh, hey, town must be getting a little small with the kids uh, out of school now. And, you know, because you, when you're in a little town, you're going, people. you're going to all the games, and you're going to all their sporting events and all their events. And all, and now... Now it's no longer your kids doing that stuff. It's other kids doing that stuff. So it gets a little bit small. Nolan said, why don't you come on down here with, uh, with me and do this Texas Rangers thing, and uh, you'll you be executive vice president of marketing for the Rangers. And so that's how we got to Dallas. We got here in 2008. We're with the Rangers for a couple of years. Then there's all this stuff with Tom Hicks selling the team and new ownership and so forth. And they cleaned house, you know, cleaned out a lot of people. And I was one of them. Mm. And uh, and then a little while later, Nolan was gone, too. Mm. Uh, and so um, I got a call to go out to uh, California to work in the energy industry for Occidental Petroleum. And I thought, we, we always love California, uh, and let's try it. Let's do it. So my wife and I are empty nesters. We went to Los Angeles for a couple of years. And a lot to like about Los Angeles, a lot not to like about Los yeah. Angeles. But I get a call a few years later from Dallas saying, we saw you with the Rangers. Um, we think you'd be a pretty good president of the Dallas Regional Chamber. Would you like to come back and interview for that job? And we said, you know what? We really like Dallas and like the people like the town. It was a great life here. It's a great business uh, community. Um, let's try it. So I came back, I interviewed, and uh, they, they hired me, and I've been in the job now nine years. And most recently, the big award was what? National Chamber of the Year, number one chamber in the United States. Wow. And uh, out of 1,600 chambers, and very, very proud of that. Unbelievable. So again, the, the background is so unique and so diverse, but you say it with such a calm tone that it just screams to me that you can do it. Right, it's like if there's something that interests you, you can do it, you can pursue it, you can figure it out. I want to, I want to pepper some some questions to you too. You've seen all these different leaders in the different roles, from baseball to National Geographic to energy. Who, in your mind, is the best leader you've worked with? And that can be across the board. It could be just a, a fan that you were became friends with or a CEO, but who was the best leader you worked with? Obviously the president. Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think I'd, I start, I'd yeah. start with Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Different kind of leader, though. A political leader, I think, is different than a business leader, right? right. A different skill set. But Ronald Reagan has had some of the greatest leadership qualities uh, I've ever seen. First of all, a clarity of purpose, knew what he wanted to do, 
stayed the course, uh, was disciplined about, uh, you know, uh, staying within his, his, um, you know, you know, uh, his framework. Uh, but then, uh, was flexible at times too, uh, when he needed to be. Uh, so, but obviously I think, I think one of the great, um, skills that any leader can have is communication skills. And, uh, Ronald Reagan had them in spades. He was, that was my next question. Fantastic. You had to describe what a great, like a, a, what, what's one word that, that captures a great leader? What would you, what would you use that word? Ability to inspire, ability to communicate, ability to, um, put people at ease, uh, I think, and be consistent, uh, sort of consistent communication, uh, but know when to, when to, when to pull it out and inspire people, know when to console people, know how to use those skills, uh, at the right moment for the right things. Here's a question out of left field. Um, was there ever a moment, what's the moment when you look back, you're like, I wish I would have had a camera where you could have taken a picture of, of something or with somebody. What, what's the first moment that comes to mind? I think it was July 4th, um, 1986. You knew. (laughs) (laughs) I was, uh, and I saw pictures that the professionals took later, but it was, uh, it was at at the Statue of Liberty. It was the hundredth anniversary of France giving us the Statue of Liberty. Wow. And it was a sort of a red, white, and blue moment. And, um, and President Reagan just knocked it out of the park. And, uh, it was, it was probably the most patriotic American moment I have ever been a part of. Wow. And we were part of them every day at the White House, but that one was a little bit special. I love it. I love it. Uh, okay, so here, here's another one. Out of all these different verticals, from your dad to Reagan to, you know, the Dallas Chamber, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think the best advice I've ever received is um, that you've got to work when no one's watching. You know, the idea that if it's got to get done, you know, it's got to get done. If it's three in the morning, nobody's standing over your shoulder. You know, you've got to get it done. You've got to have high standards and know that your work product is, uh, is your, is with your name. Okay. So you got to do it the best of your ability. And then the corollary to that is when you are working, know that when you are working, everyone's watching you, Mm. everyone's forming an opinion about you. Is he a good guy? Is he a hard worker? Does he treat people well? Does he follow through? And you noticed in that that sequence of different jobs, every one of them, people were saying, come with me, come with me, come with me, come with me. And that's because they were watching everything I was doing along the way. They wanted me to be part of their team. And so when I'm, when I'm evaluating people and people that I work with, I'm always thinking, you know, if I have an opportunity to, uh, to give them a break or to bring them with me to the next thing or, or introduce them to friends of mine that I know could use their talents, I'm going to do that. Mm, I love it. A uh, question we ask everybody, and it's usually the same answer, just in different, uh, a different form. Is there such thing as balance? Like, is there work-life balance, especially, you know, you're in, you're in politics, you're working eight days a week, you're in sports, sports never sleep, even though there's a, there's a season, but is there a way to perfect balance? Um, I'd say no. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. And I don't think it's even all the time. Sometimes when you're going for something, you're going for it. I mean, you are focused on it and it requires every moment of your attention. Okay. And you're, you're, you're getting up thinking about it. You're going to bed thinking about it. Now you also have to be a parent during those times. You also have to kind of do your regular job during those times, but you're so geeked about something that you want to, you want, you know, you got an idea that you want to see through. Right. Um, 
And then there are other times when you dial that back a little bit and you can uh, uh, give a little balance to your life. But I think the people that are really successful and the people that are really um, productive, generally speaking, they are their motors running a little bit hotter. And yeah. and, and, I, and it's hard to find that balance. Yeah. Uh, I think you do the best you can. Yeah. Here's a question I've never asked anybody, but I feel like you're the best one to ask this to. You're at a dinner and you're allowed to invite five people in the history of the world that we've heard of to come to the dinner. And it's got to be because they're going to add, it's going to be the spiciest, most fun, craziest dinner ever. Who are your five guests? Whew. And it can't be like family. It's got, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, famous people. people. Yeah, okay. I'd say Warren Buffett is part of that. Okay. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, by the way. Of course yeah. he is. Um, I'd say... So Warren Buffett is... You're inviting him because he's buying dinner. So <laughs> he, but he adds a lot to that dinner too. Warren Buffett. I'd say Buffett is one. I would say uh, uh, the living or anybody past. in the history history of, of the world. It could yeah. be Jesus. It oh can my be gosh, Joe DiMaggio. It can be Warren Buffett. I think Jesus would be an okay, interesting so Jesus dinner gets guest. Invite. That way you have the food blessed. <laughs> Actually, Jesus is there no matter what. You get six. Jesus. Jesus. Okay, so Warren Buffett. <laughs> okay. Um, let me go through it. I think Abraham Lincoln is is a, is a guy wow. that would be really interesting okay, to have so it have it at dinner. Over Reagan, oh, the greatest president. I think he 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 uh, presided at a time that was the most difficult in this country's history. Yes, Warren Buffett, Abe Lincoln. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's think. Um, I'd say from a, a sporting standpoint, I'd say Muhammad Ali. That's gonna okay. That'll be that's a good. You have people that are very right. powerful leaders. Warren Buffett, who's gonna be kind of quiet. Ali's going to be the talker. Lincoln's going to be the the, you know, yeah. the kind of the um, quiet leader in the back. Yeah, with I'd Buffett. say I'd say Einstein. Wow! So it's going to be a lot of humor. Well, it's going to be a lot of different kinds of uh, diversity of thought. Let's, yeah. let's put it that Abe way. Abe Lincoln, Warren Buffett, uh, who was it? Uh, Albert Einstein, and then who who was yeah. it? Who was the fourth? No. Yeah. You know, well, it was, it was uh, Buffett. Oh, Ali. Um, Lincoln, Lincoln, Einstein. Einstein. So we one, get one more, one, one more. Pick. All right. So from the world of the arts, um, Catherine Hepburn. Wow. Now why not Audrey? Why, why Catherine? <laughs> uh, she was a better actress, I think, and more interesting. She had a more interesting life, I think. Okay. Bonus question: Who's the one celebrity that you get to next? If someone says this person is coming or famous person, who's you're like, nope, they can't come. I, I'm using my pizza card. <laughs> well, who's the one you person? Are, you are wild. You have access. You probably have direct access to. You could whatever. No. You, you, no. Okay. So who's the person that would be next on that list? Is what you're saying? Um, but they have to wait in the waiting room because there's not room for them. Yeah. Uh, let's say Gandhi. Okay. No, you would want Gandhi there, right? Yeah, you'd want yeah. him there, so right? Gandhi's the sixth call. Wow. What? So Abe Lincoln, Muhammad Ali, Warren Buffett, Albert Einstein, and Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. So Catherine Hepburn gets the invite over Gandhi. That's good. <laughs> I, I, I can appreciate that. Um, so so when, when you look back uh, out of all these things you've done, excluding being a man of faith, a husband, a father, all these different things, what are you most proud of? If you had to pick one phase of your career and all these things that you've done, like with a significant tenure, what's the one thing that stands out? I think what I'm most proud of, and it's not doesn't have to do with one part of my career, is that I've been consistent. Hmm. That's, like, that's what I started with, too. I said yeah. consistent and diverse. And yeah. You, and you've done it. And you've been yourself the whole time. Uh, yeah. I think the idea that I've always tried to treat people well, I've always worked really hard. Um, I am, I am a creature of, um, habit. I mean, I, I like routine 
And because of that, I think I kind of live my life the same way every day. I don't try to get too high or too low. I just try to live I in the in between. Try to live in the in between, and um, and just um, I, what what I love to do more than anything else is help people and to to um, to make their lives better. If I what I the, my favorite part of my day is when I see something. Something comes across my desk, and, and by the way, a lot of this stuff happens at the chamber now. And I say, "Wow, that person needs to know about that because that would help them." Mm. And then I just connect them to that. Well, in turn, they all remember you. It's it's the it's the connecting yeah, points. You're the golden yeah. goose, not the golden egg. <laughs> Lastly, the city of Dallas, the great bustling city of Dallas. Um, what is Dallas to you, and what do you see it being in the future? Yeah, Dallas. So you really, I mean, you're the you're our spokesperson. You're the spokesperson for the entire city, the number one city in the world for real estate opportunity. Everything. What is Dallas to you? The most optimistic city uh, in the in America, maybe in the world. Yeah. I mean, where where everyone here believes that tomorrow is going to be better than today. Uh, that's a pretty good place to be. Mm. It's also because we are such a prosperous community, um, especially right now, uh, people, successful people like to link arms and make this an even better place. Uh, if you if you grow up or if you have, if you're in a city like where I grew up in Detroit or if you're in Cincinnati or Baltimore where it, you're fighting every day just to just to make it, you know that that stuff doesn't happen. But because we're growing and there's enough pieces of the pie for everyone, the business community here and the people here love to link arms and say, let's make it better. Let's make a better arts district. Let's make Southern Dallas County. Uh, let's let's reduce the, um, the the opportunity gap of job opportunities and educational opportunities between North and South in Dallas. And so a lot of people are working on that now. And uh, I always say, what a what a place to be and what a time to be here. It's really it's an incredible amount of time. I tell you one last story. When I was in the Reagan White House, I got there just at the beginning of the second term. President Reagan had won forty nine out of fifty states, largest landslide in history. I get there, his popularity rating is seventy five percent. Never before, never again. And I, I we would fly into a city, let's, let's say Omaha. And we get out of the plane, and we get into SUVs, and we go to the event. And I can remember, I can remember very clearly one instance. Families are out on the overpass with signs, "We love you, Mr. President Reagan, forever." Big signs as we were going underneath them. And I tap the guy next to me on my one of my colleagues on the shoulder. I say, "You see that moment in time? Never seen it before. You will never see it again. Mm. You'll never see this again." And I believe that Dallas is in that sweet moment in time right now. Wow. Never seen it before, may never see it again. Wow. And it's not going to last forever. Mm. But what we got to do is take advantage of, of it while it's here. And this moment in time is, is a time to really make this place a great, great American city. Unbelievable. Golly, Dale for, Dale for something. <laughs> He's already been the president of everything else. But, <laughs> and thanks for all you do for all your friends and uh, for the city and for just showing that you can be a great leader. And the whole epitome or the whole reason for this podcast is just to show people that you can still be yourself. And you've proven that success can actually make you better because because of you, other people are better in return. So thanks for... Thanks for doing this today and for, for all the stories. This has been awesome. Oh, thanks, Rogers. You know, I love being around you because you are you are that positive guy, and you you love making things happen. And uh, every time I'm with you, I get inspired. So thanks. Ditto. Thank you.